Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 3. A Turbulent World the next few years were a dramatic, never-ending roller coaster ride of change, upheaval, and loss. For me, the abrupt end to my childhood and sudden awakening to life's many difficulties that had started on our overseas trip all just proved to be the precursor to what was to come next in my young life. Soon, I was to lose much more than I could have ever known. Soon, loss and chaos would seem like the new norm and the new constant in my world. And while I can now see that this constant upheaval, this induction into all that is hard and painful about life, was probably what prepared me for operating in a world of great uncertainty in my adult life, particularly when it came to advancing social change, at the time I felt very lost, very alone, and terribly disoriented. It was all I could do to just hang on. Once back home in New Zealand from our overseas trip, Mum had become even more politically active. She had volunteered for the trade aid shop since it opened in Palmerston North in 1975. And she was also very involved with the Values Party, the Green Party and Corso. The announcement that the Springboks, the South African rugby team, were going to tour New Zealand in 1981, now outraged Mum, along with thousands of other politically conscious New Zealanders, who fundamentally opposed the appalling system of apartheid. Mum, the activist, was well and truly born. On an overcast Saturday afternoon in June, Dad told us that our mother had been arrested and was now in jail for protesting against the 1981 tour. The following Monday at school, my home economics teacher told me she thought Mum was brave and truly wonderful for standing up for human equality and the end of apartheid. However, later that week, at a friend's house, after school, her father berated me and told me that sport and politics shouldn't mix and that my mother was an embarrassment. Palmerston North in the early 80s was a very conservative, rugby-crazy New Zealand town. It was not until Nelson Mandela was finally freed after 27 years in prison in 1990 that I finally understood the magnitude of my mother's actions and convictions. When Mandela spoke for the first time to the world since his release, he acknowledged how much the support of protesters especially those in New Zealand, had meant to him during his time in prison. Only then did I realise that people's actions can and do change the world. I was deeply proud of my courageous mother for standing with Mandela on the right side of history. But mum's passion and beliefs also came at a cost. Mum really does anything by halves, especially when it comes to her sense of social justice and things she cares deeply about. I remember countless encounters with friends, 
Various dinners and situations where suddenly everything would explode into an impassioned argument, and we would all have to suddenly leave. Mum distraught, furious, often in tears. It was not easy having such a strong, articulate mother at times, especially in New Zealand. Had we lived in Italy, Israel, or some other part of the world where people argue their points of view vehemently, this might have been different. But in a more repressed, polite, Anglo-Saxon New Zealand, it was not how things were done. Now, as an adult, I understand her as being like the powerful goddess and huntress Athena in Greek mythology or like the ultimate force of feminine creation and destruction, the Indian goddess, Kali. Instead of gently offering her beliefs up to others, she would often present her convictions like a bloodied head of a slain beast, cast dramatically on the ground before the startled onlookers. Her fierce passion for truth without hypocrisy, her quest for social justice at any cost, would inevitably blindside many in her wake. But as a child, I clocked all this. I clocked the chaos, the volatility and the disruption. It made me nervous. It made me wonder where the next explosion would come from, and it made me vow to do things very differently in my life. As much as I learnt the importance of standing up for and voicing what you believe in from my incredible mother, I also learnt something else. I realised it was not just what you said that mattered, but just as important to me was how you said it. The choice of words, the tone of voice, the energy, and the emotion were as important to me. Rather than casting the severed, bloodied head of a beast before others, I wondered, what would happen if she took the beast and tried to present it in a reasonable, palatable way? Perhaps slicing it into bite-sized portions, creating vacuum-sealed family packs and offering it up as a delicious cooked meal with herbs and spices just one option amongst an assortment of other equally interesting and tasty dishes. This more palatable approach was what I consciously tried to cultivate in my adult life and work. Over many years advancing social change, I tried so hard to be gentle, non-threatening, reasonable and fair. Did it work? Did it bring about change? I wonder if at times perhaps I could have done with just a dash of that Greek goddess in the mix after all. Certainly today, the best analogy I can come up with for the powerful and uncompromising team that was to form Be Accessible, our accessibility social change organisation many, many years later, is to think of them as a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Strong, powerful individuals who were mercurial and magnificent, if not easy to manage or lead. No cookie-cutter, sanitised corporate book on business or management would ever provide me with the model or framework for thinking about and understanding my team at that time. Only once I read Stephen Fry's book, Mythos, did it all become crystal clear. Only then did I also wonder if my mother, the fierce goddess, had also perhaps prepared me for this too. Towards the end of 1981, my parents divorced. My family as I had known it came to an abrupt and permanent end. Suddenly we were splintered into individual pieces, fragmented and scattered far and wide. While at first the separation felt reasonably amicable, this did not last. In 1981, divorce was still a fairly rare thing. So yet again, we as a family were challenging the convention and norms of life in a very conservative small New Zealand town.
Money now became very tight, so Mum, Damon, Scott and I were forced to move from our beloved family home on the hill to a new small bungalow in the city. This move marked much more than just moving house. It marked the end of my relationship as it had been with Dad. It marked the end of my relationship as I had known it with my best friend Rachel. And it most certainly marked the end of life and our family as we had known it. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was huge pressure to take sides when parents split up. Perhaps this had something to do with the law at the time, which required one or other spouse to have been unfaithful in order for a divorce to be lawful. This cultivated a mindset and a narrative that was very binary, black and white, good and bad, victim and persecutor. As Dad soon had a new wife after the separation, I felt it was important that I was Mum's ally, Mum's support. I felt she needed me. Rightly or wrongly, I imagined Dad was okay without me, but in truth I missed him very, very much. As it turned out, Mum would in fact soon need a great deal of love and support. At Mum's trial during the Springbok tour, she was defended by the local MP and lawyer Trevor McLean, who later introduced her to Tim, a dear friend of his. Tim was slowly dying from a hideous form of lung cancer. He had asbestos poisoning, caused when he had installed asbestos as a law student in the Wellington Hospital, of all places. Ironically, it was in this very same hospital that Mum first met Tim as a patient. Trevor had taken her to meet his dear friend while he was in the chest ward, having his lung lining removed. Mum and Tim fell deeply and desperately in love. It had been just six months earlier that we had moved out of our beautiful house on the hill into our 1930s bungalow in the city. With Tim so sick, Mum, Scott, me, our cats and the dog then moved again, now into Tim's house. Mike had chosen to move in with Dad and his new wife-to-be, Lynn, and her children. And Damon was now at boarding school in the Waikato. Naturally, Mum spent all her time with Tim, loving him, nursing him, trying to make his final days on earth as comfortable as possible. When I woke on the morning of my 13th birthday, I soon realised that no one had remembered. I did not want to make a fuss, but I agonised all day whether to tell Mum. Eventually I did. She was mortified that she had forgotten, and immediately went to her bedroom cupboard where she had stored my presents some weeks before. She gave me a set of maroon striped leg warmers with a matching scarf and hat. It was a fleeting moment of joy, but that joy felt tainted. It felt awkward, and of course, that joy, or whatever it was, was not to last. Less than a month after my birthday, on the 5th of June, 1983, at 4.55am, choking and suffocating, Tim died in Mum's arms. He was sadly one of thousands of New Zealanders who have died a similar death from asbestos, an invisible and lethal substance that was now known to kill. Tim was 46 years old. I remember the funeral. Mum sat with Tim's children in the front row. Scott and I sat somewhere in the back, not quite sure of who we were and how we fitted into this tragic scene. The children of Tim's heartbroken lover, but not the children of the deceased. I wore a brown and white checked dress Mum had made for me, with long sleeves and a full skirt. At the reception, a friend of Mum's came up to me, 
turned me around and pulled my skirt out of my stockings at the back where it had become hooked up. I was mortified, in a way only a 13-year-old girl can be. She then sat me down, held my hand and told me I would now need to be very strong for my mother. I took this instruction deeply and earnestly to heart. Mum was heartbroken, utterly grief-stricken. Day after day I came home from high school to hear her sobbing in her room. Meatloaf spat out of hell was on constant repeat. The cask of Montana white table wine in the fridge was replaced regularly, and Mum started to draw the most remarkable images in black ink pen on large sheets of paper. Wild, swooping, sweeping wings and tiny organic creatures emerged from her, day after day after day. I was now 13. My father had a new family. My mother was broken and in shreds. My oldest brother Mike lived with Dad. Damon was at boarding school and Scott was a daydreaming 11-year-old who still somehow thought the world was full of brightly coloured butterflies and fairies. I was very alone. However, there was still more chaos to come. Deep in the midst of all this, something else was going on. Something that would change my life forever was slowly, irreversibly taking shape. I did not know it, but day by day, week by week, month by month, something was quietly, stealthily stealing from me. The gods of pain and chaos were far from done. As fate would have it, the year we moved in with Tim and he tragically died was the same year I started high school. In my first year at Palmerston North Girls High, I started to really struggle. For some time I'd been aware that I was not seeing things very well. During maths, which I actually really loved, I found it harder and harder to see the small, detailed equations on the blackboard and in my books. But there was little, if any, concern or care for me. Certainly no extra help or support. My music teacher scoffed at my claims that I could not see the sheet music as I tried first to learn the flute and then the double bass. I simply could not seem to get the sheet music close enough to my face without the flute getting in the way. My ballet teacher simply dismissed outright my claims that I could not see what she was doing at the front of the class when I repeatedly made mistakes in the choreography. And I simply could not get any closer to the blackboard than the front row in my German classes. I became increasingly disheartened as I valiantly struggled to manage on my own. I hated being prevented from doing my best and from excelling. My deep thirst to learn, to study and inquire into the world around me felt increasingly stymied. My attempts to thrive and to reach my potential were constantly thwarted. I kept on trying. I kept on exploring ways to see and to participate on an even footing with my friends and my peers. But gradually I felt myself slipping further and further backwards. Gradually, I felt myself withdraw and lose confidence in my abilities. I didn't tell mum and dad how much I was struggling. There did not seem to be much space to raise this with anyone. All mum's focus was on Tim, and all dad's focus seemed to be on his new family. Once again, I just sucked it up, and I just kept quiet. Then, during my fourth form year in 1984, my science teacher, Miss Levine, called me back one day after class. She had seen me looking at my friend's notes and trying to copy them down, as I could not see what she'd been writing on the blackboard. 
She kindly told me that she was concerned about my eyesight and asked to speak with my parents. The funny thing was, Mum actually had our eyesight tested every year. Not just by an optometrist, but by a specialist ophthalmologist, Dr. Warnock, my friend Catherine's father. Over the next few weeks, there were many tests, which involved putting stinging drops in my eyes, asking me if I could see a range of letters on distant and fuzzy charts, and looking at coloured dots and blobs on paper. And worse still, were the many faces pressed up too close to me, breathing hot, steamy air onto my shy 14-year-old face. But Dr. Warnock remained bewildered and unclear about what was causing me issues. One day he called Mum in to see him. He told her that he thought there might be one of three reasons for my sight issues. Firstly, it could be a brain tumour. Crikey. Secondly, it might be a sight condition that they could not yet identify. Thirdly, and most likely, I might have a deep psychological problem that meant I did not want to see the world. This did not seem entirely unreasonable, given my very complex home life at the time. Looking back, I realised that probably many of our family friends and small-town Palmy would have been aware of this turbulence. Being a quiet, diligent child, I spent the next 12 months seriously wondering what this deep psychological issue might be. What didn't I want to see in my world? In April 1985, just before my 15th birthday, it was actually a relief when Dr. Warnock finally had a diagnosis. I had a rare congenital sight condition caused by recessive genes, called Stargardt's disease. I was essentially blind in the centre of both my eyes. Dr. Warnock told me I would never drive a car, I would not be able to read books or see the printed word, and I would struggle to see faces and recognise people. He did not think I would go completely blind, but my life would be forever and dramatically impacted. Mum ran out of the consulting room in tears. Dad was not there. Perhaps he was at work. Perhaps he was with his new family. Perhaps he had not been invited by Mum to attend the appointment. I did not know. I just sat there, alone, trying my best to absorb what I had just been told. What did all this mean? Was this really a big deal? Should I be more upset? I was not sure. At least I did not have a brain tumour or a deep psychological problem after all. In many ways, wasn't this just yet another card I had now been dealt from the universe? The next thing in a long list of things I had to accept and deal with the best way I could? I did not feel sorry for myself. I did not think, why me? I have never thought, why me? I just had to get on with things as best I could. In some ways, my diagnosis also just seemed to get lost amongst all the noise and turmoil around me. Chaos, disruption and uncertainty were now the norm for me and my family. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter, coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.